0: Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present circumstances no matter what your present circumstances this absolutely is a design for living that works in rough going
1: well hello friends of bill w and other friends you have landed on sober speak Hear ye, hear ye, all ye Sober Speak listeners, this is episode number 192, that's uno nueve dos of Sober Speak, and this is Jenny L. Get in the car live at Tri-Cities and you are so much going to enjoy this episode, but first things first, this here episode is brought to you by Trudy. You know what Trudy did? She went to our website, our brand new website, if you want to go visit it. She went to her website, silverspeak.com. She clicked on the little yeller donate tab and she made a, a contribution. Thank you so much, Miss Trudy. This episode is coming right out to you. I, John M., will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings. And I am truly honored to be just another bozo on the bus and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So take a seat, if you will, around this virtual table and let's get started. Remember, no matter who you are or what your past looks like, you are welcome here. It is an open table and we are glad that you have joined us. So my friends, I have had a busy week. I know I am not the only one out there with a busy week, but I guess the reason I'm bringing that up is to say I have been fairly stressed out uh this week, uh, mainly because of work and a lot of activity going on there, but uh, you know, now I'm kind of pulling back and I come up here and I sit at this mic and I take a deep breath in. And it's like taking a respite from all that. And you guys give me purpose. You give me, uh, you are such light. All the emails that I get and all the, oh, Instagram messages and Facebook messages and all that. And I just love that we're part of one big community. And I come in here and I take a deep breath when I get behind this mic and my shoulders just kind of. Droop back, and I feel wonderful. And I just want to thank you all for that. I so much appreciate that. We are now, I'm just going to hop right into the episode today, and we'll have plenty of uh, listener feedback at the end. This is Jenny L. live at the Tri Cities event. If you want to catch more of Jenny in an in interview style, um, uh, in an interview, if uh, you, you could go to episode number 110, it's called Jenny L. Just Say Yes, but we're calling this one Jenny L. Get in the car live at Tri-Cities. So enjoy this if you will, my friends, and we will have plenty o listener feedback at the end of Jenny's talk. See you on the back end of this episode.
0: My name is Jenny, and I'm an alcoholic, and I've been kept sober by the grace of God since May 31st, 2007. And, um, yes, my home group is the Chicago group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet on Wednesday nights in Dallas, Texas, and uh, currently we're still on Zoom. And I have a sponsor, and her name is Kim, and she's here. And I have a, I have a grand sponsor who's Joanne, and Joanne's on Zoom. Hi, Joanne. And um, and I have sober sisters here And I have women that I sponsor and I have grand sponsees here and I'm right in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous and there is no place that I would rather be. And I'm so glad to see so many people from all over that are here, you know, because I'm one of those people that likes to get in the car. And so uh, uh, I would like to thank the committee for asking me. Um, John, is this okay? Is this better? Okay. Um, All right. So um, I'm glad to be here. I don't know. I'm just going to talk about that for an hour. All right. So anyway, I'm going to start drinking. So I actually have visuals, which are probably a little bit more challenging to do in a room like this. And many of y'all have seen them, but I'm going to show them anyway. And if you want to see them afterwards, because you're in the back and you can't see them, well, you can come see them. So um, they're my first selfies that I took in 2005 on a really bad old camera phone. And um they're indicative of what I feel like I was, um, of who I was when I came in here. So if you can't see them, I have this huge knot on my, um, on my temple. I have a split lip. It's bloody. It's bruised. And my skin's really bad. I've got bruises elsewhere. And what, um, this one picture right here that you really can't see, but I can see it because I emailed it to myself. And, um, there's no light in my eyes because I'm absolutely hopeless. I'm dead inside. I wanted to die. And everything that I had done to try to kill myself didn't work. And I was living in what the book calls that pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And, um, and that was a woman that came into Alcoholics Anonymous. And because of these steps that I didn't want to do, because of that G word God that I didn't want to have anything to do with because I was mad, Because of um, people like y'all in rooms like these, I have been completely inwardly reorganized and transformed and had that absolute psychic change. And um, the way that I think and feel and react to life is completely different today. And it's all because of these 12 steps and because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I'm going to start drinking. My first drunk, I was 17 and I was on a church camping trip. Now, I had had alcohol in my life. Um, before, but this was the drink of consequence. So I am on this church camping trip, and I was raised in a church that was relatively mild as far as religions go, but anyway, we had gone out to Possum Kingdom Lake, and um, and I remember that we were sitting at this picnic table that was a little bit further down the road from where um, our, you know, like, tent was, And so I'm sitting at this picnic table, and I've got my boyfriend on the right of me, and I've got this other guy friend on the left of me, and I've got my sister there, and I've got, like, kids I'd grown up with my whole entire life. And then this drunk redneck brings us this bucket of margaritas, and I remember everything. Like, he sits this bucket down. I remember what he was wearing. I remember, like, the, like, twinkle in his eye. I remember his haircut. And he sets that bucket down, and then I remember, like, taking that white little styrofoam cup. Y'all, you know the ones we have in all the AA meetings. And I remember taking it and, like, dipping it in. And then I remember having that first sip. And, man, I remember that first sip like it was yesterday because, y'all, margaritas are tasty, right? But more than anything, I remember how it made me feel because what I didn't really realize is that I was sitting there with my shoulders up against my ears and I'm there with my boyfriend and the friends and my sister. I mean, I knew her her whole life. And uh, and I didn't really realize it, but I hadn't taken a breath. And so I took that sip of margarita, and all of a sudden I could breathe all the way to my toes. And my shoulders relaxed, and I gave, you know, I had that sense of ease and comfort that comes at once, like the book talks about. And my shoulders relaxed, and I could breathe, you know, And then I remember tossing that cup back and then dipping it in and drinking it down and dipping it in and drinking it down. And the next thing I know that I single-handedly drank that whole bucket of margaritas. And I don't think I let anyone get a drink in edgewise. And then anyway, the boyfriend and I decided that we were going to go have sex like you do when you're 17 and you're on a church camping trip. And, um, and so we get up and, you know, our tent was down the way a little bit. And so I get up to try to like go, um, you know, we're going to the tent. And, uh, I can't walk. You know, I get up and I'm like a little wobbly. And so what happened was, is the boyfriend and the other guy friend, they hoist me up and they're, you know, carrying me. And my legs didn't walk. I mean, like I couldn't work my legs. They were dragging. And um, so they carried me back down to the tent. And y'all, you know, in hindsight, that was not the best of ideas because my mother works for that church. And um, you know, the church counselor was like six feet away in another tent across a little dirt road. And, um, so anyway, the boyfriend and I are doing what we're doing. And then the next thing I know is that other guy decided that he wanted to jump into, and I don't want to get any sort of discussion about what really happened on that trip. But what I know is that I was in no way, shape, or form able to make any sort of rational, conscious decision. And so anyway, we were doing what we were doing, the three of us, and, um... And then everybody found out about it, and it was crazy and it was humiliating and it was embarrassing and um, and I just had to act like that. I was all cool with it and like rock on like I chose to do this, and yeah, but deep inside, I was filled with shame and humiliation and um, and that 's the very first time that I drank drink it was from like zero to one hundred and sixty and there was like big drama with the church and you know there was like a parent you know meeting with all the parents and everything, and it was like that was just crazy. And it's like, I didn't wanna do that deal, but that was really the first time that I drank. And so what happened is, is like really my whole life, I have this incredible, unshedable burden of self-consciousness, where everywhere I go, there's this voice in my head that says you're not enough. You're not pretty enough, you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you're not enough. And for that little sweet spot at some point of drinking a couple of those margaritas, that not enough voice shut up, and I was okay. And then I overshot the mark, and crazy stuff happened. And but that not that that feeling enough was enough to make me need to drink again, right? And so I sought that feeling at every step of the way, and pretty much the whole time that I um the whole time that I drank, I had consequences always. You know, the very next time that I drank, I messed up my car in a church parking lot, and lots of church parking lots. Um. Anyway, so, but you know, stuff happens. So then anyway, I I, I graduate high school. I go down to college in Austin where very quickly my alcoholic life becomes the only normal one because I had to be out doing something every single night because I'm just not okay in my own skin. Like the book talks about how we're restless, we're irritable, we're discontented. And I could not sit still, I couldn't be home. So I had this, you know, $5 pitchers at this bar on Monday nights and whatever Tuesday nights. And I had a plan and a routine every single night because I had to drink. And what I started learning was I always, you know, drank more than my friends and, you know, we'd say, we're going to go out and we're going to have one pitcher and then we're going to go home and study or do whatever we were going to do. And I always overshot the mark and it was like five pitchers or this or that or, you know, shots for everyone with money I can't afford. And then I started discovering all these other consequences that happened. Like I throw up a lot. And I don't really like to throw up a lot, but I would be the one that would be sitting outside the bar on 6th street puking in the gutter. And I'd say, I don't want to do that again, I don't want to do that again, but I would drink and I would drink and I would do it again and again and again and again and always every time. So anyway, I'm drinking like that in college and things are rocking and rolling and I'm getting through college because I'm super smart. You know, I know Shakespeare. I can manipulate my class so I don't have to go to 8 a.m. classes and I can, you know, do my schedule and I'm hungover all the time. and and, um, you know, and I'm just getting through college. You know, if I show up to afternoon classes and take notes, I learn it. So I'm, I'm just getting through school. And then Thanksgiving of my senior year, my best friend commits suicide. And um, we had grown up at church together, and he was the most amazing human being that I had ever met. And he killed himself because he was gay. And I remember we were home for Thanksgiving, and we had his funeral, and I remember, um, I remember that the people at my church told me that he was going to hell and it was literally last march where i realized oh my god it probably was one person one person who told me this and i like did this whole wholesale condemnation of religion and god and everything when it was probably one person that told me that and what's really cool about aa is um you know how we get to choose our own conception of god in here and i didn't know that then So what I did was I basically used it as this giant renouncement of God and um, just went off on, you know, just a bender. I drank, I didn't leave my couch, I didn't graduate college. Um, I got to graduate or walk across the stage in a cap and gown and look like I graduated. Um, But, you know, I was one hour shy, but who cares? I have a photo that's good enough, right? Totally. So anyway, I like leave Austin and I come back home and like my alcoholic life just takes off and it becomes the only normal one. What I do for a living is highly conducive to drinking and partying. And I got a job working for this alternative news weekly. And I was like, Bill, I had arrived. We had like beer reps bring us alcohol. Um, we had a stock bar at work. I'm dating my boss. So I get a, like away with a lot. I get paid for a, a lot of work I didn't actually work. And I'm just drinking all the time. And what happens was, is I would, um, you know, I was going out every single night. And so here's where um, I needed a way to fix it. I was trying to control and enjoy my drinking. And I absolutely want to respect the podium of Alcoholics Anonymous. But we'll just say that I started accessorizing my drinking with a whole bunch of dry goods. Someone put it as condiments the other day. I really like the condiments. That's good. I like condiments. Um So anyway, I was accessorizing my drinking with a whole bunch of dry goods because I realized that these certain dry goods would allow me to stay upright and sober, sober, and not throw up, and I could drink for days and days and days at a time, you know, and uh, stay at the bar and be relatively social and not puking. And so, um, so that's what happened. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm going through life and I'm doing all this and, um, You know, and I started having more and more consequences. You know, inside I was starting to feel worse and worse. And all of us, like, the consequences are not what makes us alcoholic. You know, this is just my story. This is just where alcoholism takes me to crazy things and doing crazy things with crazy people. And inside I'm feeling worse and worse. And, you know, that, like, church camping trip situation where I had to, like, drink some more to stuff the feelings of guilt and shame. And I just did that over and over and again. And I hated myself so much, and it was just getting more worthless feeling and more hopeless feeling and more lonely, like sitting in a room with all these people I thought were my best friends for like a week, you know? And uh, and then the consequences and started happening. So I, I lost that one job at, at the newspaper, and I got a better job even, actually, where I had an expense account. And I was dating all my college friends who were... Um, you know, like, let me party, and I got away with a lot. And then I lost that job, and then started a whole bunch of jobs where it's like I'd get a job for two weeks and then I'd lose that job again. And, um, you know, and at some point in there, like, I couldn't hold down a place to live, and I had moved in. Um, my uncle owned these two homes, and um, I lived with my girl cousin, and her brother, who was a heroin addict, lived across the street. And um, my cousin and I, we would drive across town in ice storms to go to my home bar to get alcohol and to get cigarettes and free pizza and all that kind of stuff. And it was like I was willing to do whatever it took to get what I needed to get because I would get free alcohol at this bar. What I know now is that's actually called stealing. But, um, but anyway, so I got, you know, I was doing all that. And then my uncle kicked me out because I was pretty worthless and I couldn't get a job and pay rent. And so my uncle kicked me out. But that's okay. I met a guy at a bar. And it wasn't like that, you know, I always had guys, but this one was, he was a lighting guy for, or, yeah, he was a lighting guy for a band, and so he was on tour, and he needed someone to house and pet sit, and so I decided that I was going to move in with him, and he had this 13-year-old blind dog, and he had a cat, and y'all, I'm super allergic to cats, and I'm really not a fan of cats, so sorry if you like cats, I'm not a cat lady, and anyway, so, um, But I've moved in because I needed a place to live. And so I'll just do whatever. And so, y'all, this is the kind of person that I am when I'm, you know, an alcoholic In their cups is an unlovely creature. I was supposed to take care of this man's dog. I was supposed to walk that dog at least twice a day. And I can recall one time that I'm dead certain one time I walked that dog in the six, seven months that I lived there. And then that dog died on my watch. And I didn't kill the dog, and I'd done some step work around the dog, but I certainly was neglectful of that dog, you know. And I had to call Randy, and he was in Mexico, and I had to tell him that the dog died, and he kicked me out. That's okay. I had backup. There was a guy, and he liked me. And uh, so I didn't really like him, but I decided I'm going to move in with him. And so when I moved in with him, I told him, I said, well, I'm an alcoholic. I didn't really know what that meant, but I knew I drank a lot. I was like, I'm an alcoholic. And uh, I said, I'm going to cheat on you because I did that a lot too, and, uh, and I said, I, I um, have a raging problem with cocaine, and, um, and I'm going to take all your money. And he said, move in. And so, so he drank a lot, and I drank a lot. But like I said, I was, I was awake a lot, and so he passed out a lot. And, uh, and so he, he was asleep, and I was awake, and we were like ships passing in the night, And, um, you know, and that didn't, you know, didn't really go out, go so well. So anyway, it also got abusive. And when I say it got abusive, I'm the abusive one. Because if you don't act right and you don't do what I want you to do when I want you to do it, I'm going to shove you and I'm going to be really critical and nasty and mean and I'm just not nice. And so it got abusive and then I decided that I was tired of him beating me up. And uh, because really it was me, uh, but, you know, and uh, we make stuff up in our heads. And so anyway, um, I went and got a job. And I was, uh, I'm going to use this word loosely, because I I went to a job, and I was, uh, basically I worked part-time like about four hours a week, and uh, so, you know, and it was at a makeup counter at the mall, which was great for me, because I could like be hungover, I'd come, you know, come to about 4, 4 4.30 p.m., I'd go to work, I'd stand there at work, just try not to heave, Um, I'd put on makeup to get all dolled out to go out later that night, and um, so it was a perfect job for me. And then what I decided to do was I decided I needed my own place to live, which is absolutely something you do when you work about four hours a week. You go get an apartment you can't afford. And so anyway, um, I do that, and by this point I have to drink like I have to breathe. And I had no money, clearly. So I would go get a 40 or a pint or whatever, and then I would go to this one bar that um, I had befriended people there, and there was a couple of guys that I could work for some cocktails And, you know, the owner of the bar was one of the guys I could see for some other accessories. And um, I would go home to my apartment, and I would, like, sit in my closet cross-legged on the floor, terrified. And I would drink, and I would cry. And I was so lonely, and I was so hopeless, and I was so miserable. And at some point in there, I had had gone to the bar one night, and, and I was actually injured with a brown recluse spider bite, and I had a gaping hole in my leg. Um, and I needed, I needed a drink. And so I went up there and long story short, I moved a homeless guy in with me that night, um, to take care of me and play nursemaid on my leg. And so I'm all laid up and I moved this guy in, his name was New York. And, um, so I move in New York and, um, and so he, he's taking care of me and, and I start, you know, selling my stuff to pay for cigarettes and vodka and uh, anyway, he would go to the pawn shop, and he would do all this and that. And then at some point, you got evicted, because, you know, when you don't pay rent, you get evicted. And so um, New York leaves, and uh, and then I need a place to live. And that's okay, because, like I said, I always have backup. See, I had a girlfriend. She was, like, my best drinking buddy, and I could use her for stuff, you know, like cigarettes and pizza. Buy me, like, some beer. And so anyway, she had this boyfriend, and I had met him when I was in a blackout, and I didn't really remember him clearly, but he remembered meeting me, and so he had called me later, and when I we, we hooked up again, I didn't like this guy at all. Y'all, he made the hair on the back of my neck stand up, but I moved in with him because he had a roof, he had a swimming pool, he had cable, you know, he'd buy my vodka and my cigarettes and food if I chose to eat it, and so I moved in with this guy. And it got real abusive real fast. And when I say it got abusive, he was the abusive one. And he was flinging me around like a rag doll and beating me up and pulling guns on me and all that kind of stuff. And I kept thinking, I'm a victim. But I moved myself in there. I am absolutely not a victim. I chose to dance with every single one of these people, right? So anyway, I'm moving with this guy and he's beating me up and doing this and that and the other. And then I start running around trying to get away from him. And what I was doing is I was running around East Dallas, and, um, okay, so I went to college for journalism, and so I wanted to expose all the shady businesses on Lower Greenville, and I was going to write a story, and I was going to be the next Jack Kerouac, and so I started, like, getting away from this guy and running around East Dallas and, like, writing stuff. I even had a little mini cassette recorder. People did not like that, by the way. Um... But anyway, I was running around doing that, and I started meeting some, you know, like some of those, like, lower companions the book talks about, and some criminal degenerate friends, and at some point in there, like, the guy's beating me up, and he's, like, hitting me upside the head with a little, you know, gun or whatever, and and I'm not liking that too much, and so I have this brilliant idea that I want to get back at him. So I run this idea by my criminal degenerate friends, and when your criminal degenerate friends say it's a bad idea, it might be a bad idea. But anyway, I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And what I decided that I was going to do was I decided that I was going to chop his Chevy Tahoe. And y'all look like a room who, some of y'all might know what chop a car means. And if you don't, it means sell a car for parts. So I sold his car for a hundred bucks, a bag of Cheetos, some Gatorade, and a pack of cigarettes, maybe a Snickers. It wasn't even a real chop shop. It was a shady convenience store in East Dallas on the corner of Gaston and Fitzhugh. And, um anyway so uh i did that and at some point in there i go back to his house and like you know whatever and then shortly after that he's beating me up again so i run away again and i get arrested and i'm sitting in dallas county jail going you know god i don't belong here i don't belong here at all you know what is wrong with me you know i went to college you know like my parents didn't raise me this way i mean i i came from a really i came from a good home you know, I mean, I wouldn't have said that then, but I did. I, you know, none of my childhood was anything that would cause this, but this is alcoholism because it just doesn't care, right? So I'm sitting in jail going, I'm never doing this again. I'm never doing this again. And, um, and then this guy bonds me out, which I don't know why he bonded me out. Cause you know, the Tahoe stunt, but he bonds me out and I'm sitting there going, okay, like some of y'all have been to jail, so y'all remember when you like have, um, you get closer and closer to getting bonded out and you're moved from tank to tank to tank. And as I move from tank to tank to tank, I'm going, I have $10 on my books. You know, I need cigarettes, I need a beer or vodka, I need a Snickers, you know, whatever. And so I start triaging, you know, what I need. I'll pick up snipes off the street, cigarette butts off the street, you know, I'll, I'll bum a light, you know, I'll do this or whatever. And so literally that time that he bonds me out, like Dallas County Jail has a parking lot that's adjacent to like the courthouse. It's not even across the street. And I have a bottle to my lips because I cannot bring to mind with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of a week or a month ago. Like I'm literally not even off the jail property and I have a drink because I can't even go across the street to the bail bondsman's because I have, I have no solution. Like I have to have a drink. So anyway, he bonds me out. And when he bonds me out, he tells me that he's moving to Illinois. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Like, he's my source. Like, where am I going to live, you know? And I thought, when you're bonded out of jail, that you do need to show back up for court. And it turns out that you do. But um, I learned that later. So anyway, what happened was, is I didn't know this, but I jumped bond. And I went to Illinois, and he was beating me up in Illinois. And, um, and... Uh, it was not good. So I call my granddad in Fort Worth and I get him to wire me some money and I come home on a bus and I'm fully homeless. And back when I had moved homeless New York guy in, um, you know, I had sold my bedding. I had sold my pots and pans and my kitchen stuff. You know, I had sold computer equipment, you know, CD burners and stuff like that. And at this point, I had nothing else to sell. And Carla R, a speaker from California, talks about you do the next indicated thing. And so I just did the next indicated thing because I had something to sell. And that's what alcoholism does, is it just takes away every bit of your, your dignity and your integrity and your humanity and your spirit and your soul, just one drink at a time. And I kept giving it away for just one more drink and I was hanging out with sick people in sick places and scary places and places nobody should be at 5 a.m. And I was doing other things and starting to commit crimes and I was running around and I was hopeless and I was lonely and I was miserable. And my family was way done with me and my normal friends were way done with me and y'all, even my criminal degenerate friends were way done with me. You know, at some point way before I had dated a coke dealer and he took me home and deposited me with my mama and said, she has a problem. And when your coke dealer boyfriend says you have a problem, you might have a problem. Anyway, so I'm out there on the streets and I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm lonely and I don't want to drink anymore and I don't know how to get off this hamster wheel that I'm on. And it's just crazy and it's like I'm, I'm lonely and I'm miserable. And at some point in there, I got arrested again and I was given deferred, you know, whatever. I never could sober up long enough to show up to probation. Um, I'm running around, I'm doing what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. And so at some point in there, I meet this guy, you know, typical. AND HE MOVED ME IN FOR LIKE A WEEK AND HE SAID, YOU HAVE A PROBLEM, AND I WAS LIKE, YOU THINK? AND, UH, AND HE GOT ME TO GET TO GO TO A TREATMENT CENTER, SO I WENT TO A TREATMENT CENTER FOR LIKE TWO WEEKS AT THE BEGINNING OF 2006, AND WHAT HAPPENED THEN WAS I HAD DISCOVERED THAT THAT LITTLE BOND JUMPING ILLINOIS THING HAD TURNED INTO A BOND forfeiture, AND DALLAS COUNTY WANTED TO FIND ME REALLY BAD, AND SO IT WAS LIKE I WENT TO THE TREATMENT CENTER TO KIND OF PLACATE THE JUDGE AND LOOK GOOD, BUT I WASN'T DONE YET. And um, you know, and I also knew that my charges were such that it was really like I was gonna face some charges. I didn't know what was gonna happen, but there was some stuff gonna be coming down for me. So I went to kinda look good, but I wasn't done yet. And I remember getting out of treatment, and I was like, you know, I don't wanna do this other stuff, and I don't want the consequences, and I don't wanna feel this way anymore. And I was looking at prison time for like, some stuff I had done. And, um, and so, I was like, I just need a drink. If I could just drink a martini like a lady, you know, if I could just go to the balcony club and, you know, have a few martinis, I was like, I'm not going to do that other stuff. And it was like, y'all, okay, this is probably sacrilege religion, Texas, but I'm not a fan of country music. Well, I wasn't, been, I'm better now. But anyway, I even went to like some country bar to drink long necks and ride a mechanical bull because I thought that that would fix me. It didn't, totally didn't. And I was really too wasted to ride that stupid bull. Um, But anyway, so I was out for like a week and I remember vividly. So Lower Greenville, the Bar Street in Dallas had this rooftop bar. And I remember I had my backpack on and I remember walking by myself and I remember like the people on the roof and I remember hearing the laughter and the conviviality. I remember the like twinkling lights and hearing the music and I just wanted friends. I just wanted friends. I wanted to be able to laugh because I hadn't laughed in so long and have a like true, genuine smile and that twinkle in your eye, you know, and I wanted to do something at the tail end, just something innocent, like swing on a swing set, you know, and I hadn't done anything like that in so long because I was just this close to dead. And so anyway, I'm walking up that street and I just want off that hamster wheel And so I was arrested for the final time, February 11th, 2006. And um, I remember when the car, I was speeding in Richardson, Texas, which you do not speed in Richardson, Texas, didn't even see the police officer. And I remember feeling relief when I was arrested. And that lasted about 30 seconds. And then I was full of self-righteous indignation. And um, I mean, and they even locked me, anyway, whatever, never, one of those straitjackety things that uh, someone was talking about that the other day. And I forgot about that, like in those chairs, horrible Anyway, I was like a real criminal because what I had discovered is that I had two charges for felonies for burglary of habitats for that um, Tahoe stunt. And I had also broken into this other guy's house and relieved him of his DVD player and stuff like that because he told me he would take care of me, but he didn't. So I helped myself and I gave him the pawn tickets back so I don't know why he pressed charges. He could go get his stuff. But anyway, um, so... I'm sitting in jail, and then I go to Dallas County Jail, and I was there for a while. And then I finally got my sentencing, and I was sentenced to six months in the Dallas County Judicial Treatment Center. It's a a hardcore behavior modification program. I was given 10 years of probation and $40,000 in restitution to pay back. And and I went to treatment. And um, I'm sitting there in treatment looking at the steps on the wall from morning to night going, I'm not like you people. (laughs) I went to college. I know Shakespeare... You know, but I was a liar, and I was a cheat, and I was a thief, and I was a lot of other things, and I was so, so, so very sick, and I was an alcoholic, I just didn't know it yet. And I was so full of pride and arrogance, and I had such a closed mind. But what happened was is that women from, from Alcoholics Anonymous started coming in and carrying this message. They started carrying a message of depth and weight with this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they started telling me about alcoholism, and they started telling me about the nature of the allergy and what that looked like. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. I'm allergic to cashews and cats, you know, and it was like, "I," so I can get what that looks like, you know. But then they really explained, and it. it's like this phenomenon of craving, and I could see the, the, the margarita situation. I'm like, oh, okay. And then they started explaining, and also we have this mental obsession. And what that looks like is I have a broke brain that is basically like I have this internal GPS that my brain is always rerouting towards alcohol no matter what. And if I don't have alcohol, I'm restless, I'm irritable, I'm discontent. It's that incredible, unshettable burden of self-consciousness, that whole thing. You know, the book talks about the bedevilments on page 52, where we're prey to misery and depression, full of fear, lonely, all the stuff, you know. And um, I'm like, yeah. And so alcohol is my solution. That treated what really is my problem is this hopeless state of mind and body. I have this spiritual malady. And alcohol worked to fix it for a while, but it didn't work. And what happens is, is these women started telling me about the sufficient substitute that they found in Alcoholics Anonymous by taking these steps and getting a connection to a higher power that will solve their problem. And, uh, anyway, and I didn't want anything to do with that G word I saw in the third step because I saw my, you know, because of what happened with my friend Colin didn't want anything to do with it. So anyway, I started learning about alcoholism. I'm treatment. I'm doing the deal, blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm not doing the deal. I'm doing treatment deal. Um, So I get out of treatment and I go right back to doing what I was doing because I was basically locked up for that whole year and, um, I didn't find that sufficient substitute. So I still had my problem, which was me. And so I went right back to doing what I was doing and I drank this and that didn't work and this didn't work and that didn't work. And I was experimenting or whatever. And I had an original sobriety date in January of 2007, but without a program, without a sponsor, without anything, um, you know, in May of 2007, I, um, I, uh, my friend called and said hey do you want to come party and i said yes i do and without a thought of the consequences i got in the car and i drove to her house and she had this tiny 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 little bag of cocaine and i was expected to share it and um i did and it was like two little tiny bits of you know whatever and it was enough to make me need a drink and so i got in the car and drove back to my house and by this point i lived with a boy like you do um, I didn't really like the guy, but I needed, you know, I moved in with him cause I needed a place to live and get out of my sober living apartment or place. So anyway, I'm like, I knew the guy would be, you know, he would bust me and I was a little on edge and so I needed to drink. And so I walked down the nearest 7-Eleven and with dimes and nickels, cause that's all I had. I bought the cheapest 40 ounce of God knows what kind of beer. And I slid it across that counter with just guilt and shame because I hated myself so much because what I knew, I was doing everything against like my soul and my values, right? And I knew I was doing something wrong, but I could not not drink because I'm powerless. And I could not manage a decision on my own not to drink without something else to stop that. That's something else that I've now found through these steps with a higher power that I connected to through taking these steps And so anyway, I had my last drink and, you know, it was like in a paper bag in my closet of my apartments, sober living apartments. Um, And it was really lame as far as the last hurrah goes, but it really was my true step one surrender where I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was powerless. And, um, And at the time, so like I didn't have a sponsor, but I had a friend. And she had gotten this new sponsor. She had been working a program, but she got a new sponsor. And all of a sudden, she had this new light in her eyes. And I wanted what she had. Because what had happened was, is when I got out of treatment, I had gotten a guy, I'd gotten an apartment, I'd gotten a car, I'd gotten the clothes and the bank account and the job and all this stuff. And on the outside, stuff looked good. Looks like I'm sober. I'm not homeless anymore. The consequences aren't happening. But inside, I had this gnawing at my soul. Is there all there is? There's got to be something more. And so when Christina had gotten this new sponsor and she got that light in her eyes, I wanted what she had. And so I asked that woman, her sponsor, Paula, to sponsor me. And the first thing that that woman said was, "I'm only going to help you if you're willing to help others, because you know you you know we have to give it away to keep it." And she said, "Are you willing to sponsor women when I take you through the steps?" And I said, "Yes." I mean, I was terrified, but what else? I was desperate. And so anyway, and then that woman got me into the book. She got me into the steps. She got me into service, and she got me in the car. And because I had one of those get-in-the-car kind of sponsors, I'm here tonight in Frisco, Texas, because I was taught to get in the car. And I was taught about the nature of having a home group. And I was taught about having commitments, committed meetings at those home groups. And then also to take commitments. And I, we were going everywhere every single night. We had a plan and we had a routine. Get in the car, get in the car. And boy, there were times I did not want to get in the car. And she was like, I don't care how you feel, get in the car. And I'm very grateful. And so and we were doing stuff all the time. And I started taking these steps and my life, started to change. And absolutely, it started to change. And because of the steps that I took that I did and continue to take, but that I didn't want to do, I developed a relationship with a higher power that could only be HP at first. And then now it's God, you know, and now it continues to grow and evolve. And, you know, and it's like I get a deeper relationship. And then there's some times that it's like I feel like God's removed. And, you know, but I continue, continue, continue to seek, continue to try to improve my conscious contact. And I continue to do this deal because my life has absolutely, like I said, it's been transformed. That I absolutely have a hope today and joy today. And I never thought that. I hated myself so much. I couldn't talk to y'all. I was so scared. I was so felt like I was so worthless and just like unworthy and unlovable and unforgivable. And God and y'all and everything has completely changed that. And it takes work. You know, the book talks about in step nine, it says it twice. We must not shrink at anything. You know, it says reminding ourselves that we're willing to go to any lengths for a spiritual experience, you know, for victory over alcohol. You know, and it's like I've been willing to face the things that, you know, like I didn't want to face. And it's like, but every single time I'm willing to do that, you know, it's like, more layers of the onion, and God gets to just demonstrate through us what he can do. And it's such a miracle. And there were some things that I thought I was completely unforgivable for, and, um, and uh, through this process, God has transformed me. So three times you know, I, I got pregnant, and three times I chose to not have those babies. And that was the hardest thing, you know, where I was like, I'm good, don't need to have these kids, probably better off, you know, certainly would drag them through, you know, hell, being homeless and stuff like that. And when I got sober, I thought that it didn't bother me and I thought that I was cool and I thought that I was fine. But through this process, I learned that I wasn't fine and I was unblocked. And here's the deal, because, you know, in step nine, basically, if God's in me and God's in you and I'm blocked from you, then I'm blocked from God, And so I need to do everything to try to go out and make these amends and make amends to them all. And then, of course, like the book says, sometimes people can't be seen. And those little babies couldn't be seen. But we can make amends to them. And so I got to send them an honest letter. And through guidance of my sponsor at the time, I got to do that. And I did some other stuff. That was not in the big book, so I won't share it. But I'll share it offline later if you want to know. And I got to get healed. A week later, I was at my home group, and I got called up to the podium, and there was a little boy, and he was antsy, so some woman was pacing up the side of the room with him, and I remember I was up at the podium, and I look over, and I see that little boy Jackson, and God literally pulled the shame out of me. He pulled the shame out of me, and I felt it. It was really trippy. Um, But anyway, a little bit later, this woman asked me to sponsor her who had had a kid, And see, before, I had a sponsee who wanted to get pregnant, and I was so blocked that I was not, I had not fit myself to be of maximum service, like the book talks about. We do. And so I couldn't help this woman, and I was like, why do you want to get pregnant? Whatever. And I was very dismissive and just kind of abrasive, and it wasn't very helpful or effective. But anyway, fast forward to when I finally got to be healed from that. I was able to to sponsor this one woman with, and you know, when she had the baby, she almost lost that baby and I was at the hospital, which is a huge gift. And then shortly afterwards, my sister called me and she was pregnant. Now my sister has been my person and she was, you know, like when we were head to head in separate rooms as little girls knocking on the wall, you know, and, and sticking up for me against my parents. And then, you know, I broke into her house and I had kilos of cocaine in her house when she was in law school. And she had to come, you know, I didn't care, and um, she had to come bless me out of jail and all this kind of, well, she didn't get me out of jail, she left me in jail, which helped, actually. But, you know, um, my sister was my person. And because of this amends process, my sister and I had gotten to make amends, but then when she told me she was pregnant, it was a huge, huge deal, because I've been able to be there for her every step of the way. And that little girl just turned two on April 7th, and she's the most amazing human being on this planet. And it is such a, it is such a gift to get to be in her life, and to participate because, you know, alcoholism, I'd say it robbed me of motherhood, but I just gave it away because I needed another drink, and, um, and another, and another. And that's such an amazing deal. And so there's been so many amends that are like I don't have time to talk about. But God, like when I'm just willing to take, you know, take that risk, God like shows up and shows off most of the time, and um and it's a really cool deal. And through this whole thing, you know, I was taught, you know, taught what to do. I'm active in all three legacies of Alcoholics Anonymous. Y'all know the little um, the logo with the triangle, the recovery, the unity, and the service. And you know, I'm active in the steps and you know, some way, shape or form every single day. And the unity thing, the unity is so huge. It's really huge and it's why I'm so grateful to be here with y'all today. You know, like Zoom was great and it is great. The word, it's helpful, some people really need it. What I was learning is last year, I need y'all. I never thought I needed y'all when I was drinking alone in my closet and squatting wherever and running the streets, but I need y'all. And so I was like, God, when I got to see people and actually hug people, God, what a huge, huge, huge deal. And then also getting to be of service, you know, a lot of the service commitments have been a little few and far between. And it was like making up what I could do um, for people digitally and online. In fact, one of the, one of the home groups is an outdoor meeting that started last year, and it's a fireside meeting. And me and Elizabeth, like, we were trying to figure out stuff to do, and I needed to be of service, so I would go on walks and, like, pick up sticks off the sidewalk. And then Elizabeth called me when I was like, What do I do? I was like, Go to the park and pick up sticks. So we have kindling commitments, um, which is new and different. Y'all have heard of the coffee commitments, but now we have kindling commitments and um but you know just getting really creative and then for some of y'all that are like you know during COVID like the whole get in the car thing was like we can't so getting super creative of what can we do to get in the car meaning to take action and it's really cool and to get to be of service um and that was what I was taught to do from the very beginning you know and then what's the most amazing amazing thing is that from somebody who was so hopeless and worthless and a thief and a criminal and a liar and all this stuff, um, what God can do in this program is that my dark past has become my greatest asset. And with it, I get to avert death and misery for others. And I get to walk this journey with y'all. You know, and then I get to like, put my hand in my sponsor's hand, and then I get to put my hand out in my sp- the women I sponsor's hand. And I've been really blessed with just some amazing sponsorship for sure, but the women that are in my life and continue to be placed in my life just inspire me every single day. And they make me work harder, and they make me dig in, and they call me, and they truly are the the 12-step promises talk about frequent contact with each other, you know. With, is the bright spot in our lives. Maybe I could actually, like, read the book. Um, oh, I just opened up right to it. How fun is that? Life will, take on, life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives and that is absolutely true and I just get to see y'all walk through some stuff and it's amazing and it's inspiring and to just to do this deal no matter what you know to continue to trudge sometimes we're skipping sometimes we're doing handsprings but sometimes it's just trudging and we just continue to do this and we try to continue to help others and it's really a really a great deal so um, I want to wrap up with one of my favorite promises Um, It's on page 100 of the big book. And I was presented with the ninth step promises at my very first meeting at my old home group when I was still in treatment. And those ninth step promises are great. We read them all the time. But y'all, there's like 150 promises in this book. And my favorite ones are these ones on page 100. I opened right up to it again. Hey, thanks, God. Um, And I think it beautifully summarizes this program. And it says that both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. No matter what your present circumstances, this absolutely is a design for living that works in rough going. You know, and I get to have this life that's beyond my wildest dreams with Jenny's husband. We're recently empty nesters. I'm so excited I can hardly stand it. We do need to do some work on the teenager's room, though. Um, But this is a high-class problem. From somebody that lived in Dallas County's homes and squatted and was homeless to someone that has a home where we get to have people in our home. You know, right now our home group is still on Zoom. So we're starting to have people over on Wednesday nights in our living room, just like um, Clarice and T. Henry Williams, who were like the people in Akron that allowed the first members of the Oxford group before it was AA, they met in a home. And it's so amazing that I get to do that today and we'll get to walk this path with not only y'all, but you, Greg, um, Jenny's husband. And uh, <laughs> ah, anyway, and it's all just absolute miracles because I was taught to just say yes and get in the car. So, anyway, thank you so much for being here tonight. And if you're new, I urge you just get a sponsor, just say yes and get in the car. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Jenny L. Once again, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, if you want to hear a little bit more of Virginia, go to episode number one ten of Sober Speak, and we have her in an interview style in an interview. And the episode is called "Just Say Yes." Now on to a bit of listener feedback, and the first bit of listener feedback here was actually posted on our. Podbean um page which is a it is a uh a podcast player and this comes from rain rain is raining down on us with comments i'm sorry anyway she says jennifer's story and she's talking about jennifer h K that we have parts one and two on a couple of weeks ago. She says Jennifer's story is one I can truly identify with. It is so similar and amazingly close to my heart that she actually brought some clarity to my understanding and my alco logic behavior. <laughs> That's a term that Jennifer H K used on her episode. My alcoholic behavior and my visits to jail were so regular, it became just another day in the office. I couldn't understand what was so wrong with me. I blamed it on everything and everyone but myself. Now, I am completing step eight and I have the most wonderful sponsor and my friendships are those that I have met in my AA group. Uh, my AA home group, I love life. Thank you so much, Rain, for writing in. I sure do appreciate that. Or I guess I say for writing in, she actually posted for for what it's worth that like anyone's keeping score at home. Anyway, Mark writes in and he says, hola, John. And I believe Mark is mocking my bilinguality here, but he says, Two quick notes of appreciation for you, me amigo. First note, he says Jennifer H.K., who was just referenced by Rain on the previous comment on our Podbean page. Uh, he says, Jennifer H.K. is my new favorite sober speak guest. Well, that is say it a lot, Mr. Mark. Her wit and delivery had me laughing out loud of course she was genuine heartfelt and honest as she told her story and to do so in such a funny way she is talented point number 2 from mr mark he said in your listener feedback section i got to say to Mar- oh, I know what he. So what he's referencing here is is I played a voicemail from I think it's Marge Bargy, A couple of ways I-, I had a hard time understanding the actual name, but anyway, a uh, I- Marge was none too pleased with I guess some of the gibberish that happens on this. Uh, uh, podcast. And I had no way to reply and email with uh, Marge because the, the there was no email left or anything like that. But anyway, he says, I gotta say to Marge, who does not like your banter <laughs> or your shenanigans, <laughs> she doesn't have to listen. <laughs> it's a free country. Find a different podcast. I give you such credit for sharing feedback that is critical of your work and your style. You handled that with grace and much class. Much respect on that. You keep rocking, in air quotes, the pod. (laughs) You have so many fans. Oh, gosh, I, I don't... I do not consider what I have as fans, but I appreciate that more. Uh, these are, these are just like, I don't know. I feel like I'm just meeting a bunch of people in meetings, sharing in meetings, and we get to talk to each other afterwards about it. But anyway, you have many fans all over the world who choose to listen to. You, in big capital letters, your work makes a difference and is appreciated with gratitude, Mark A. in Wilmington, Delaware. Well, Mark A., me amigo, thank you, my friend. I appreciate you saying all of that. Megan C. writes in, and Megan says, Hi, John M. I live in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Ypsilanti, so... Now, the first thing I'm thinking in my head, right now, this is not normal, I'm sure, and I'm sure this is not happening, Ypsilanti, but I'm wondering if people walk around all day saying, uh, uh, how's it going, Yippers? 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 I'm from Ypsilanti, Yippers? But nonetheless, I live in Ypsilanti. Now, can you imagine if Marge was, I, I hope, he is not, he or she is still not listening to this particular uh, podcast because uh, they're going to blow a top. I'm sure. Nonetheless, uh, I live in Ypsilanti, Michigan, Eastern Michigan University near Ann Arbor. My sobriety date is 11 18 November eighteenth of twenty twenty. I found Sober Speak on my Apple Podcast channel and listened to it on my commute to work. I've only heard a few speakers so far, but Julia M. was memorable for me and how much—oh, that's actually Julia K.—was memorable for me and how much she loves AA and being of service. I've found it helps me stay sober when I'm being of service Megan C. Well, Megan C., I concur. And the people that I see that are happiest in this program are able to get out of themselves and somehow serve others. And I really appreciate you writing in. And I'm sorry I I talk so much about Ypsilanti, but it is kind of a funny name. You know what I'm saying? Luis dms me on the gram and he says hello john this is Luis c i'm originally from mexico but i now live in ottawa canada today is my first year anniversary of sobriety well yippee mr Luis! <laughs> yippee can it can be used in so many different ways anyway um Yippers, yippers. Y- 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 anyway, I'll, I'll just shut up now because I'm I'm really, really going on a tangent and uh, I'm trying to figure it all out in my head as I go. Anyway, he says, I couldn't have made it without my home group, my higher power, my sponsor and your podcast. Thanks all of you for being on the road with me. I'm going to take this day as I always do one day at a time. Muchas gracias. Well, muchas gracias to you, Luis. And once again, thank you, or excuse me, once again, congratulations on your first year anniversary. That's a big one, and I'm really, really glad for you. Austin writes in, and Austin says, Hey, John, my name is Austin, and I live in Milton, Georgia. It's a suburb of It's a suburb north of Atlanta. I'm 39 years old, and I've been in the program off and on for about the past six years. I'm about 40 days sober after going back out for the past two years. I've been listening to your podcast since day one of sobriety, in parentheses, this time. And I cannot tell you how much I appreciate what you do. Well, I appreciate you, Mr. Austin. He says, I attend meetings on a regular basis and have been listening to sober speak in my car during my Work commute. It's honestly one of the best parts of my day. I'm in surgical sales, so I spend a lot of time in my car driving to hospitals. Sober speak has been a huge part of my sobriety to say the least. I look forward to listening to your sincere, to your sincere perspective on recovery and absolutely love the guests. My favorite guest so far has been Bob S. from the Marine Force Con episodes. Bob's story had me literally on the edge of my seat. What an incredible journey. My favorite part was in the end when he met his war buddy's son at a meeting whom he had held when he died in the war. Simply amazing. Anyway, John, wow, I just got a little chill my spine remembering that part of Bob's story. And I completely understand that. Awesome. Man, do I understand that? Uh, in fact, I've been texting back and forth with Bob here over this past week. Part of what I was texting him was about was your feedback. Uh, and, uh, it, um, anyway i know he loved it Uh, i love this too and i appreciate you watching anyway i had not finished up anyway sober speak is the best you i think you are an incredible person oh you're too kind please keep up the great work i'll definitely be listening thanks brother austin r well thank you brother for writing in i do appreciate it and thanks for reminding me of that episode last But definitely not least, Elaine writes in, and the subject line of Elaine's uh, message was barely sober. She says, John, thank you for your podcast. My name is Elaine, and I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober for 22 days. Good for you, Elaine. I have a terrible time sharing and speaking in meetings. I cry when I say anything cry when someone else's cry when somebody else cries. Well, just listen to Matthew M and he was vulnerable and I cried on that one too. It made me feel normal. Well, it is normal to cry, Elaine. I cry all the time as well. I completely get it. She says, here's a silly story. I was super hungover on Sunday, May 23rd. Monday, still feeling shame and asked a friend how she quit drinking. Well, she picked me up and took me to a meeting. That night, I had a dream about a super cute baby elephant. I was selected to carry the baby elephant. He was playing with my hair and my nose and my glasses. He was super funny and sweet. I told a friend of mine, and she looked up the meaning. Dreaming of a baby elephant represents new opportunities that can lead to massive success in your future. If the baby elephant is happy or is in water, it is a sign of good luck and prosperity in your future. If the baby elephant is angry or hurt, it is a sign that the decision you are making may not lead to success. Later, I looked up that an elephant at birth weighs two to three hundred pounds. <laughs> ha ha ha. Can you put me in the super secret, super secret Facebook group? Elaine. Well, Elaine, as you know, you made it in. And I hope that I have a dream. About a little baby elephant tonight. (laughs) A a happy and super cute baby elephant. All right. Looks like I'm losing my voice. So that must be the end for me. Keep coming back, everybody. It works if you work it. So glad everybody, everybody could join us along for the ride today. I take this one week at a time. I will most likely be back again next week. I'm traveling again this week, and uh, let's hope I make it back. Anyway, God bless you. Love you guys.